Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B. We have a another sad one today because uh, we've lost another one of uh, the great people who've come on this show to share their lives with us. Uh, this is the fourth uh, death we've had, which is very sad. Um, one of the ideas behind the podcast was that you would get to hear from people who you don't normally hear from. I had this sort of feeling that there was a lot of people who I was meeting around the world who were, you know, not famous. And I guess fame today is a slightly loaded phrase. Quite a lot of people who are famous today, I don't believe, deserve to be famous. And there's an awful lot of people out there who've got wisdom and a story to tell that often never gets told. And we've had these people who've died and their families really one of the things that I've received a lot of positive feedback from is, you know, it was good that we have them on tape for posterity telling their stories. And none more so than Anthony Pavoni, who died in Charleston over the summer. Um, he was a great friend of mine. He was a larger-than-life character, as you'll hear. And it's very sad for his his wife, Jane, and two daughters, Tara and my friend Kelly. Because this lad was just one of those great... He was, <clears throat> you know, we used to... We played golf together. We drank together. We told jokes and stories together. He's an ex-military guy. He's a Marine who fought in Vietnam, as you'll hear. And he wouldn't have had the same politics as I do. But he's a great example of the American everyman who knuckled down, got things done. He talks a lot about focus, about, you know, having a focus. This is the next thing I did, Sean. This was where I was going. And taking that responsibility at a very young age and living it through your life is one of the sort of standouts for me on the interview that we did a few years ago. Um, the other thing about Tony is he was a, he was a big lad, but he was a very charming and kind and considerate man who loved to laugh but he was a fair guy and he he didn't like when things weren't done right or fairly or kindly for people. He was a very generous spirit and we had a lot of laughs together through my time when I was living in New York and I went to visit him a couple of times down in Charleston and, uh, you know, you'll hear in the podcast um, this in sort of infectious man who is so interesting to listen to. One of the things that I was uh, planning to do for his family was to do a director's cut, a longer edit of the original podcast, which I did last week. And actually, when I heard it back, I thought, why not just put the longer one out? And um, I think it's a much richer episode when you hear a lot more of his backstory. There's a few little glitchy cuts in it because we were taking a few breaks. 
um, as we recorded. The man was a lover of sport. He has insight into his decision to take on one of the toughest jobs in the military, which is becoming a Marine. His term over in Vietnam in the 60s, his homecoming and how he got his life moving again on his return from war. And he was a big giant, you know, he was a giant of a guy. I remember saying to his wife, it'll take some elephant gun to take him down. But he's he's moved on to something new, bigger and better. And we all hope at some point he may be waiting for us. So this is what we're doing in a pint with Shawnee B when someone passes. This is a memorial to Anthony Pavoni, RIP. Anthony was a consummate patriot, a man who believed in America. And he was a Yankees fan, a Giants fan, a golf fan. But I wanted to play this little piece of music, which is fitting for the loss of a great man. This is the singing of God Bless America at his favorite Yankee Stadium in New York. Will you please rise and direct your attention to the microphone behind home plate and welcome representing all of New York City's emergency services, New York City police officer Daniel Rodriguez, who will now sing God Bless America. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above, from the mountains to the prairies, to the oceans, wide with home. God bless America, my home, sweet home. God bless America, my We'll miss you, big fella. Welcome to another episode of A Pint with Shawnee B. This is a good one today. I have a raconteur, a gentleman who is a great friend of mine, and I'm in Charleston in South Carolina, of all places. Both of us are nursing a lot of mosquito bites from a round of golf that we played today. And this gentleman is a man who I've known for, I think, maybe seven, eight years now. 
Oh, yes. It's been seven or eight years. Seven or eight years. He is a first-generation Italian New Yorker who has a big life to talk to us about today. And his name is Anthony Pavoni, but we all call him Tony Pavoni. Is that okay? That's fine, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. You have a, a lovely home here. We're, we're sitting in, ton, in Tony's home on a, on a sort of a, a late summer's rainy Charleston kind of day. But Tony has uh, lived in a lot of places around America. Uh, I want to talk to him first about his early years, which were spent in uh, upstate New York. And as I said, he was a, a, a first-generation Italian-American, meaning he was born in New York, but his parents came from Italy. Is that correct? Well, actually, my father came from Italy. He was the immigrant. My mother was born here. She was a first-generation ah, okay. American. Her father was an immigrant. My father was an immigrant. Right. Okay. Where were they Mary from in Italy? Well, actually, they were both from a, a similar area. Uh, it's called, uh, the province is called Marquet. It's on the uh, eastern side of Italy, uh, near Bologna. Okay, I got it, yeah. Right. Bologna. And um, mountainous country. In fact, you probably saw it in the news recently. That's where they had earthquakes. Yeah. People were killed in small villages, mountain villages. Um, I've actually visited that area right, to right. see where my father was born. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful country. The common thing that we have is the Irish and the Italians built New York. Well, my father, when he first came here in 1920, worked on the road gangs, helping to build a highway system, the early highway system, considering the fact that in 1920 we didn't have yeah, through ways. any cars then. Cars were coming. <laughs> I know. But they needed roads to to work on so they had a lot of Italian immigrants and when my father came here he had his brothers who had already been here working on the roads obviously they got him a job right away and uh, they were using tools today that uh, were available at that point which was shovels yeah bulldozers which were very uh, kind of old and archaic was he working compared- Manhattan or no he actually they, they, they worked um West Virginia, oh, Pennsylvania, okay. oh, and around. New York. All the uh, roads that, 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 that are part of the network right now, Like uh, if, if you're familiar with that, that area, hmm. US-81 was one of the roads they worked on, but it wasn't called US-81 at the time. It was called one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just two-lane highways. Yeah, there wouldn't have been many roads. No, yeah. there were just yeah. two-lane highways. What were your early years like and where, where tell me a bit about where you were born and what went and how sure. you came to be eventually my family my father and my mother married in the in the 30s during the depression uh i was the last child that they had i have two sisters who are older but i was born in 1941 in rochester new york but lived in a small suburb called east rochester new york small town you know good portion of the town were uh, Italian immigrants settled in there, and most of the quote people that I grew up with were first generation Italians. Was there a great protection of the culture going on when you were growing up? Did you feel Italian? Um, uh, there was an awful lot of uh, not only use the term ins- insularity, but there was a large families Italian traditions yeah. 
spaghetti on Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> spaghetti on red Sunday. Wine. <laughs> yeah. Homemade yeah. red wine. There wasn't any liquor stores around to provide you wine. So where did they get the grapes from? Oh, they, they'd buy them. Really? In the, the store? Markets. Right. markets. And make, make, make wine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They'd buy them by the crates, the grapes. And every every one of my uncles had his own little wine press in the basement. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I suppose the Irish were there making putching and shit like that for themselves. Yeah, moonshine, probably. Moonshine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, homemade Italian red. But uh, small town, uh, very sports-minded town. Football, okay. basketball, baseball, golf. It was a huge thing about the, the town because most of the kids, to make money, ended up being caddies. Right. You know, the private golf courses yeah, yeah, around yeah. Rochester. So, hey, as you grew up, you had to find a source of money, and your family was pushing you towards finding money because chip in, Anthony. Did you become a caddy? Oh, absolutely. You caddied for someone famous, you told me once. Oh, I caddied for, well, I'm not going to say that they were famous, but they were relatively important in, in, in when growing up. There was a pro basketball team in town in Rochester. Uh, it was part of the NBA at that time, mm. the early NBA. One of the members of the club was the owner of the Rochester Royals, which was the name of the club. And I used to caddy. He'd always pick me. He said, come on, Anthony, I want you to caddy for me. Right. And he'd give me tickets. Yeah, brilliant. The tickets were only like a dollar and a half Whatever, or maybe two dollars. Well, they're great. Yeah. You just had to get to the stadiums or the uh, the Coliseum somehow. Yeah. Well, it wasn't even the Coliseum. It was a war memorial. That's yeah. what it was when we were growing up. It was it was a fun time because you could play sports. You you could do things into the night. Yeah, you never had to lock safe. your door. Yeah. You were safe, uh, and you just breathed sports or work or school. Right. As you what was school like? Well, it was good. I mean, we were small small school. We only graduated eighty nine uh, students in oh, my senior baseball, year, huh? but. It was one of the larger schools in the area at the time. Today, it's still the same size, and it's not the largest anymore. I bet not. No, no. The town has changed. The, the, have you gone back to it? Oh, yes. Yeah. I've still got family up there. Yeah, okay. I have a sister. Yeah. You know, I visit her occasionally. You know, she's still perking along. And then plus, then I've got nieces and nephews. Did you, feel, did you feel like you were Italian or American? I can edit all this Put out. it on pause. But he made it a point. When he got here, to to go through the naturalization process, and he, and he took he took it to heart mm. about becoming an American. Mm. He learned English. By the way, you should understand he only went through fourth grade in Italy, because in the early century or the yeah. early part of the twentieth century, not everyone went to school. Not everyone went to school. You got to fourth grade. You're ten years old. You went to the you went out to a farm to work. Mm. Mm. That was it. Mm. And he worked, and that's what they do. And he did that, and then he got to be 17. He says, I, I've got to do something else in my life. And his brothers, some of his brothers had already come to America. They were they went through the naturalization process, as he did. Mm. Still spoke very fluent Italian the rest of his life. And he would speak Italian to my mother. But in front of me... Always English. He would go to English. I still can't speak Italian. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, I can before. understand only because I hear the word heard the word so often. Yeah. I would pick up pieces. Yeah, yeah. But I can't speak Italian. Okay. And it's a sad thing. Right. Now, fortunately, some of my relatives in Italy have 
better English than I may have. Because one of them, in fact, is an English teacher. But he teaches in the Italian schools. But anyways, growing up during the 40s and into the 50s, I was with all American kids, Mm. but American boys and girls Mm. in the schools. And by the way, we were were taught second languages, but you had to take it as an elective. Do I want to take French? Do I want to take Spanish? Mm. Etc. You weren't forced to take Mm. any. By the way, Italian wasn't even offered in the school. Yeah, Yeah, small school. And then on top of that, like I said to you, it was a close-knit town. And in the town, you know, if you were a big kid growing up, Hey, you're going to play football. <laughs> Were you a big kid? When I got to be a, a freshman and sophomore in high school, yeah. yeah. I became a you know, good-sized kid. I was almost six foot, right. 180 pounds. What age are we now at this stage? 15, 16. Right. Okay. I, you love all sport. I, can, I you played can, all you sports. Can nearly, like, you can nearly have a conversation with Tony about soccer, though he doesn't like soccer. But, I'm not you know, he, We didn't he, have soccer then, no, by the way. But he's Italian. He doesn't like soccer. Hey, no, 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 no. We didn't have soccer in the school. Ah, right, right, right. But I played the other sports. But I even played. to this day, your big loads are kind of golf, baseball, and football, right? Baseball, football, and basketball. Because I played uh, the three, all. The three big American sports. Well, I played them in high school. And so I played some in college when I finally got to college. So when you were in school, they had an eye on you as a as a what a, a, a offensive lineman or a Sean seventy five. I'm going to be seventy five. Football back in the fifties, there was no free substitution. It was eleven guys against eleven guys with a few. That's subs. right, yeah. and you took your best eleven. I think it'd be better like that now. No, well, that, that's. Those rules have changed, but back then, what you did was you learned the sport, and in football, you went both ways. Both ways meaning you played offense and defense. Yeah. All right. You wrecked. Pardon? You'd be so tired after the end of a game. Well, you're young. You had a lot of energy. You kept yourself in shape. The minute the the quarters, by the way, weren't there were I think there were twelve minute quarters back then. Right. Twelve. Which means the game would be 48 minutes versus 60 So we're talking about leather helmets now at this stage and just... My, uh, well, I I missed the leather helmet. No, 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 no. I missed the leather helmet by about a year or two. Okay. All right. I got the first suspension helmets, which weren't a heck of a lot better than the leather. Well, a little bit better than the leather, but uh, a lot of different uh, uniforms that we had back then. We had different uh, pads, et cetera. I mean, today they've got... Tremendous amount more, and they get hit harder, and they do hit hard. What was your position back then in the football team? Well, I, I was an end, right? In, so, uh, for those offense. of us from overseas who don't know anything about American football, tight end would be a very kind of protective kind of role, right? A protect. Pr- well, if you were in a running offense, you you were blocking a lot. Yeah, right? yeah. And in, yeah. in, in, in our my first couple of years in high school was a running offense. We didn't have great passers back then. Today, the kids are more skilled because they're playing in, in a, a bigger uh, programs. For example, Pop, they, Pop Warner came along, which was a, a a little league type football. We didn't mm-hmm. have it when I when I was 10, Meaning 11, Meaning the kids 12. are schooled better earlier. Well, A, they're, they're getting the basics a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, B, they, 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 they will play a lot more football yeah. as time goes on. They'll start playing when they're maybe they're 10, 11 years old, organized football. Speaking to the helmet thing while we're on it, what, where, where is your head at, uh, excuse the pun, uh, on the whole what's going on with American football here now? Because it is, it is getting to a point where it's the, the number of people who are very anti-American football from a, a teen, 
teenage young kid point of view when it gets contact all the way through to the NFL where concussions and stuff are being let right. Where, where do you fit, fit with that? Because you're a lover of the sport. Well, first of all, if you're going to play the sport, there is a risk. I'm not going to sit there and say, hey, it's a man's game and that's the way it is. There's a risk. Mm. There's a risk for injury. Um, even when I played back in the 60s, a lot of guys had knee problems, ankle problems, some head problems, some mm-hmm. concussions, etc. And, and uh, but but the game has gotten faster. The players are in some Fitter. cases massive, and the hitting is harder mm. only because they're bigger and they're faster. A lot of the rules that have come out weren't in effect 30, 40 years ago. The helmet to helmet hit, you mm. could do that then. Oh yeah, today ruled against, which is good. Yeah. They're trying to bring the safety into the game, but you're still going to have problems with it. Yeah. Problems meaning it's a risk. You're going to have injuries. You, you, you've got to realize that, A, as a player, B, as a family who has a son who wants to play the game, they're going to have to sit there and say, hey, there's a risk. Mm. You want to play it, understand the risk, protect yourself as best as you can. Which you means stay physically fit. And avoid the the big hits. Do you believe that it's a fair trade-off? Because if you become a superstar in motor racing, you might die. In soccer, you might die. But like you know, in, in any of these rugby, in any of these contact sports, you fair. They, they get paid a lot of money now. They do get paid a lot of money. That's why I say you've got to weigh the the, the risk for the reward or the risk reward problem. I mean, you see a lot of older players today. In some cases, maybe 10 years after I finished my sport, they went on, became pro football players. They're now in their 60s or approaching the 70s. So they, they started their football career back in the 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s. Some are crippled. Banjacks, yeah. 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 So, And your football career, what was that like? What was it well, like I, when I you were like... High, I played in high school and I played in college, so... Yeah. You know, it was a small college, mm. you know, in upstate New York, and it, it, it was it was. I liked the sport, I liked the contact sport, um, I liked the the fundamentals of the game: mm. tackling, blocking, catching a ball, running with it, whatever it might be. Uh, but you know, it wasn't going to be a, a, a profession for me. It was a sport, and, right. and that was it. Uh, and parallel to that, you were also, because of what you talked about earlier with the caddying, you were also a golfer at this stage, yeah? Well, the caddying career <laughs> uh, was interesting. I started caddying when I was nine years old. Wow. There's a little bit of a funny story there. Mm-hmm. If you don't mind, I'll share it with you. Of course. Uh, I, I was playing in a, uh, what they call a, a bitty basketball team sport. As a nine-year-old, yeah, it was out of a Catholic Youth Association program, and uh, we we play Saturday day morning games at the local uh, CYA, what we call Catholic Youth Association, and the coaches were normally guys in their mid twenties, maybe school teachers, mm-hmm. uh, young guys, yeah, and yeah. helping the young kids learn the game. Mm. And uh, one of my coaches 
like me. Was, you know, he, I, I showed a lot of desire on the floor, and I, I was, I was, you know, that kid that was, I, I want to play. Let me play. Yeah. Let me get, get me in there. Let me in there. Yeah. And, and, and uh, so, anyways, one day he said to me, he said, "Would you like, would you like to learn the game of golf?" Now, by that time, I was, uh, uh, we just finished the season. Basketball was over. Spring was coming. Hmm. I says, "Well, I, that's good. Another sport." So he says, "Come, I'm going to take you out to a golf course with me." And, you know, I'll show you the game. So he takes me out there, and we get to the golf course, and he says, Anthony, see this? Here's the bag. He says, you carry the bag. He was right? cheating. And I'll show you how the game works. <laughs> I'll show you how the game is played. Oh, and I said, okay, I'll carry the bag. <laughs> he just needed So I carried the bag, and he went out, and he played a round of golf. And I followed him around with the bag on my shoulder. And we finished the round. He says, now do you, do you understand the game? I said, well, yeah, I, I kind of do. Is, is it me carrying a bag? Is that what golf is all about? <laughs> so, well, he says, no, I was showing how I play. You're someday going to play like that. Oh, he said, well, by the way, here's $2 for carrying the bag. I said, hey, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> it was the first time anybody had ever handed me $2 in money. Yeah. I went home, and my father said, you were you played uh, basketball today, and I said, "No, Dad, I went out with my coach. He showed me how to play golf." He says, "Really? Yeah." And guess what? I took two dollars out of my pocket and said, "Look what he gave me." My father looked at me and said, "Hmm, mm. you made two dollars for carrying a bag. Mm-hmm. You're going to do more of that, son." <laughs> <laughs> That's how I became a caddy. And when did you move from caddy to actual golf, and how did well, that happen? I, we caddying. I started caddying. I eventually ended up at a private course. And it, 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 there's a lot of humor in this because yeah. you're a young kid, yeah. and, and and money was I very. I caddied when I was a kid yeah, in Ireland. But, but, but in you have to understand, yeah. I, I, my my father recognized. Hey, there's money in this sport. Yeah. Put him to work. Put him to work. <laughs> and by the way, my father made the effort to drive me to the course in the morning to be the first caddy on site course wouldn't even open till 8 o'clock, but my father had to get to work at 7.30, so he would take me up there at 7.15. Well, with due respect to the Molinari brothers, uh, you know, <laughs> it, Italians are not really famous for their golf, right? <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Really? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I who told am you I about, missing there? I, I told you about this town of ours. Right. Okay? Yeah. Now I'm going to tell you about some people that came out of this town. Yeah. All right? Go who ahead. were caddies at one time in their life. Who grew up in that town? Yeah. Right? One of them went on because he played all the sports. One of them went on to play basketball at Saint Bonaventure University. Is that good? Well, Saint Bonaventure is a, it's a was a top power. Still, okay. Okay. it's still one of the top schools for basketball. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not the top top today, uh, but they almost won the national championship in uh, I believe it was nineteen sixty eight, sixty four, whatever year it was. But the fact of the matter remains. This young kid came out of our uh, came out of East Rochester High School. He graduated well before me. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, and he went on to St. Bonaventure. He also knew how to play golf because he had learned as a kid. Come on, it's someone famous. Tell me. <laughs> well, he won the U.S. Amateur in 1949. Wow. Yes. <clears throat> his name was Sammy Rosetta, and he was Italian. Oh yeah. Yeah. All right. There Actually, I, I, I well, not only that, but I became. Where is he now, though? Well, he, he just recently passed away. Well, I'm sorry about that. But he came back to town. <clears throat> he came back to town, 
right? In, in, 19, in 1950, actually, after he won the U.S. Amateur, they gave him a ticker tape parade in downtown Rochester, New York. Right. Right? He then eventually became the head golf professional at the Country Club of Rochester. A very famous club, by the way, an old club. Right. right? Very private, etc. in there once. Well, but the fact of the matter is he followed in the tradition at that club of a player that you may have heard of before who was the professional there in in the 20s. His name was Walter Hagen. One of the greatest golfers of all time. Right. And we're actually having this podcast, interesting that we're having this discussion, on the day oh. that we lost somebody great who was, you told me today... Uh, he was my second idol. Yeah. Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer passed away yesterday. And it, it seemed to be a little bit unexpected, I think. I mean, he was old, but, you know, it wasn't like... But Tony said to me, "Tell me, tell me why he was your second idol. Why well, was your first? Saw, my first one was Ben Hogan. I know I'm old right. enough to remember Ben Hogan, right? You know? And Walter Hagen was well. He was still around, believe yeah, it or not. Yeah, yeah. But but Hagen Hagen's heyday was probably in the 20s, yeah, 20s, 30s. Yeah, yeah. You know, Hogan was in the 40s, 50s. Yeah, you know. But I was a 13 year old kid and watched him play professional golf up in Rochester at the U.S. Open." Mm. Which he lost on the seventy-second hole. Remember? To who? Uh, actually, he lost it to a dentist. <laughs> oh, I've heard about this story. Doctor Kerry Middlecoff, who was an amateur, who was he was a dentist, right. but a professional. He became okay. a professional. Okay. But it was a big shock, right? Oh, yeah, total shock. Yeah. But anyways, I mean that that's uh, it's part of growing up. You know, you 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 have yeah. models in your life, yeah. and you say, "Oh, all right," you know. And uh, but just just to fill a little gap before we get to to. Palmer, you were so your caddy at nine. I just want to get clear on how you picked up the clubs then, because you started playing. Well, you know, every every week at the at the private course, they would say we're going to give you a caddy's day. Ah, right. They said every Monday because yeah, they had that in Ireland too. Yeah, yeah, no one played golf on Monday except we'll let the caddies go out and play. So right away, the sun was. And it's important as a caddy to know yeah, how to absolutely. play. Absolutely, the, the, the sun the sun was coming the yeah. sun was coming up, and there you are on the first tee. Brilliant. And you go out and you play 63 holes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Minimum. <laughs> no, as much as you can. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. Did you get good at it quickly? It took a while. You know, it took a while. Um, uh, you, you know, you, you, you pick up the, first of all, you, know, you brought up in Rochester, New York, the snow stopped flying in, in April. True. Now you got to get out there and hustle and make some money. Eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's go back to your first hero was, was uh, Hogan. Ben Hogan. Yeah. 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 Ben Hogan. And then Arnie Arnie came along. And, and Arnie's army. Yeah. I became part of his army. So were you, did you become a good golfer quickly? Not right away. You, you know. No one ever does, except for Tiger Woods. I, 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 during the caddying, the, the, the caddying was a heavy influence for me because mm. I spent an awful lot, a lot of time at the course. And then I got to know the local professional there. And he, he, he Kind of, I'm not going to use the term "adopted me," but he, he in, in, during the 50s, in, in the local pros would play in a, in a, a local pro am tournaments, mm. and they could pick up some pocket change, yeah. and make some money. Yeah. Uh, uh, the local pro at the course that I was at was a very good golfer, a very good golfer. Played on a tour back in the 40s, but he. he Got married, had a child, hmm. and he said, I can't, you can't make the money on the tour. But he got a very good job 
as the head professional at this private country club, a very wealthy private country club, and they took care of him. And he, he lasted there. I, I started going there in the, in the early 50s. Believe it or not, I went through high school and college, and I could always get a summer job there whenever I wanted to, working in the pro shop or headmaster, cast, caddy master, etc. So I hung around the club for quite a few years. Right. He made me his personal caddy. Every time he played, you were Every his time I'd pl- he'd play, I'd be with him. He'd take me to t- little tournaments around the, the Rochester area. I'd be his personal t- uh, caddy. I started looking at him and how he played. I literally tried to copy, copy him. Yeah. yeah. Go home, stand in front of a full-length mirror, and try to duplicate the swing. Really? Oh, yeah. Really. Were you better at football than or golf? Um, at one point, I was playing very, very well. That's I played in which one? In which one? It, 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 by the time I got to my uh, college, yeah, I had made the golf team. Also, I was on the football team and, and, and the golf team. and the golf team. And it just so happened that our football coach was the golf coach, and we developed a good relationship. And yeah. he was he was much older. Oh, obviously he was much older. He was in his late forties. A good golfer, left-handed no less. Mm. A, a very good golfer, and he I was a great Nicholson football player like in college. But he, again, settled down, uh, small school. He became the head coach there in 1937. Are you saying that you have seen people you think could have become really great but decided to have a family and settle down? They ended up with a family. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, they, they, they looked for stability. You weren't going to make money on the, on the golf tour. In fact, if you look at the history of golf in America, the tour golf tour in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the pros were, the pros in many cases were getting beaten by the amateurs. Bobby Jones was an amateur. That story I told you about Sam Rosetta winning the U.S. Amateur, he was quite frankly, in a way, more popular than the pros because the U.S. Amateur was an underdog. Hey, what was, segueing away from golf and sport for a second, what was America like when you can remember it versus today? Well, pace was slower. You had time to uh, look at life and kind of educate yourself on the decision-making process that might help you. Today, it's a, it's rapid. It's fast-moving. you got to be quicker. I think you have to be sharper. Mm. You better be sharper. To make it, well, you can you, you you can look at American sports if you want. As an analogy, well, look at them. Yeah, bigger, stronger, yeah. faster. Back then, you could take a guy like myself. I could play three sports, hmm. but I had no intention, or th- I never thought of. Well, I'm going to be a professional football player. Golf, I probably had a better shot at it at the time. Well, my game had gotten better. Yeah. And in fact, some of the uh, members at the course, I said I had a long relationship with the course. Yeah. They saw me grow up as a kid, a caddy, right? Come back. In my, right after my senior year, my game was probably as good as it ever got. Right? And I came back to work at the course. And interestingly enough, the members, members who I had caddied for, said, hey, let's go out and play. 
Because now I was working in the club shop. I was a, like an associate, not even, I wasn't a pro. I was just working. you were like nearly scratch, were you? Or? Oh, yeah, I was. You were scratch. Guy. And I would play with the assistant pro every afternoon right. during, the, during, the, during that summer. And we'd go out, or almost every afternoon, we'd go out and uh, he would give me a couple of shots. By the end of the summer, no shots were given. Because he was getting beat by me. Mm. But that would have been a, a, a one sport that I might have been able to make it. But I, You never thought about it? I, not really. It was presented to me at one point by some of the members of the course. They, they said, we could sponsor you. They had PGA schools and things of that nature. And I said, gentlemen, I've already got a career going on. So let's talk about what you were thinking of doing with your career. I wasn't thinking. I was already... It wasn't a, no, it wasn't a career. It was my next move. Yeah. Let's put Tell it that me your way. next move. Well, I was after college. Um, what did you do in college? What did I do? Yeah. You know well, what I major in? Yeah, what did you study? I majored in history and poli-sci. All right. Uh, the, the qualification of that job is either I was going to become a teacher or I would have had it going on to law school. Um, I had no desire for either. <laughs> I'm sorry, I really had no desire for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Well, lots of people say that. <laughs> well, but, but I was, I'm not going to say I was adrift. Uh, I had already uh, taken some steps in my senior year to look at a, a, a my next job. Well, my first job, let's put it that yeah. way, other than being a caddy or working your at a vision, pro shop. Your vision, you had a vision. Well, it was a vision. It, 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 it wasn't clear. Uh, and I wasn't sure about the that particular position. But my senior year... I knew I did not want to become a teacher, and I knew I did not want to become a lawyer, which meant, hey, you go in the business world, work at something. And I wasn't even keen on that. So I, I, I took some um, physicals and exams, and I, I went to, to apply to the OCS program uh, in the Marine Corps. I held off from signing on because I wanted to spend my summer after graduating making sure I was making the right move. How was the training? I'm sorry. How was that training that you did? When I finally got to it? Yeah. <laughs> I'll use the term. It's tough. Yeah. You, you, you got to suck it up. But to me, I, I, you had to do it in football. Or mm. what I, you know, football in particular probably conditioned me for... What for was the Corps. appeal to be a Marine in the Marine Corps? Oh, I had a lot of uh, older cousins who had served in, in the military. Not in the Marine Corps necessarily, but yeah. in the military. They fought in World War II. These were older cousins of mine, yeah. guys who were probably maybe 15 years older than me. So we're slap bang in the middle of the Cold War right now. It was it's early. It was 1964. Well, okay. So after Kennedy was... Oh, yeah. It was after the assassination. Yeah. It was In fact, it was right after the assassination because he got assassinated in December. 63, no, sorry, yeah. November 63. 63 in Dallas. I was a senior at that time. And... There had always been that, that thing about, well, you know, I, I could always serve my country. I could mm. always, because I, I would find it to be an honor to serve my country. Mm. Did not consider it the very first thing I wanted to do, but did consider it. The Marines were on campus recruiting, and uh, I had some friends that had already made the decision to move into the Marine Corps. So I decided to go for uh, interview. Got went through the interview, did the tests, passed them all. They said we want to swear you in. I said you're going to have to wait until I graduate. Smart. All right. I said I want to make sure I graduate, and that was a requirement. Yeah. You know they they, they knew that. 
So I held off, uh, got into the summer of 64. I was having a good time. College was over. I had my degree. Uh, had a I was job working. coming. Uh, I, I, I could make the decision at some point. Mm-hmm. I had time. Um, I was working at the course, playing golf an awful lot. It was a fun time. I was 22 years old. I was in good shape. Greens thought I was, anyways. So uh, I got towards the end of the summer, and my family had gone on a trip. So I was all home alone. Visit my sister occasionally because she lived nearby. Go to work. I was working at the course full time. Uh, I, I managed the, the pro shop. So are we bu- are you about to are we about to butt up to Vietnam now? Well, we, we uh, the, the Gulf of Tonkin, and I remember I was a history major, so the, the Gulf of Tonkin happened in that August of 1964. Uh, but it was, you know, today it'd be all over the place. All over the world. News, it'd yeah. be everywhere. Yeah. But, you know, I said to you that the times were different. You'd yeah. caught an article in the newspaper. If you're lucky. And, and people said, Gulf of Tonkin? Where's that? Yeah. Right? Right. We had a something happen there? Oh, okay. Well, well, I'm going to the golf course tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the time went on. So, but but we got towards the end of the summer, and I said, well, I, I, in fact, this is when it took place, about when I said golf was potentially the thing mm-hmm. to do. I had made a decision, because I said, my mo- mother and father were coming home shortly. I want to put this behind me. I don't want them to be involved in the decision. This is my decision. The decision to become a soldier. Become a Marine. Marine, Sorry. No, you made know, a faux pas there. Well, you know, you, you, uh, that's okay. You, yeah, I'm Americans sorry. I'm look at each other differently. If know, you're a soldier, you're a soldier. If you're a Marine, you're yeah. a Marine. It's not one or the other. A, there's no, there's a separation, right? But the truth I, I didn't want them. I didn't want them involved in the decision because I, I knew they, they would be pulling at me not to do it. I knew yeah. that. And my sister was asking, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, Dorothy, whatever I do, I'll make that decision." So I made sure that before they got home, I made the decision. And I did. So uh, I made the decision in late August. And I went down to Syracuse, New York, because I had to be sworn in down there. And they took me in there, and they they had to weigh me, because they said, well, we're going to make sure your weight's right. (laughs) I said, okay. And I got sworn in. Now, I had to wait for the OCS program to start, the the, the class. Because they only ran, ran two classes a year for the OCS program back then. The requirements for Marine officers... Explain to people who don't know what OCS means. Well, officer Candidate School. Right. Uh, it's a training program at Quantico, Virginia. Uh, you you have to have certain requirements to, to enter it. It's probably... I know it's changed a little bit right now because I have a nephew who's a Marine officer right Is now. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Went to his graduation. Brilliant. He's, he's in there. He's, he's in his seventh or eighth year right now in the Marines. But... Uh, family came home, not too happy about the decision. Why? Well, it, 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 it's it's a thing about they feel if you're in the military, you're going to possibly die. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you drive a car nowadays, you could possibly die. Indeed. Yeah. But you're more likely to die if you're in the Marines. Well, you know, you'd be surprised. <laughs> Maybe. Well. Tell me what happened though. You joined the Marines. Well, I joined the Marines. How, I, I had how, to wait till... Where was your head at? Was there any fear? Fear? No. The only thing that I would fear is failing to to fulfill my mission, yeah. which was to become a Marine officer. 
I saw a lot of guys not make it. I mean, we started with 400 candidates in my class. 198 graduated. Wow. High One failure rate. go. Pardon? One and two leave. Yeah. Well, you don't, some don't leave immediately because you made, you made a commitment. So they end up becoming enlisted men for two years minimum. So there's an impetus to accomplish it. In other words, you, you want you want to do it. You want to get it done. What was it like the day you got it? The first day? Yeah. Was it one March best? 22nd, 1965. There you go. You Burned it, it, just like my wedding said day. said enough. There you go. <laughs> All right. And then what happened? So you were now a Marine officer. Well, no, no. Well, no. You had to go through the OC, OCS program. It was 10 weeks of, uh, of uh, a mixture of uh, physical exertion. Uh, learning to be physically fit. And by the way, at the end of the 10 weeks, I was probably in the best condition I ever will have ever been, probably. Even better than the, the next three years. Even though I was in good shape the next three years, mm. that 10 weeks was was as tough a, a camp that I've ever been in. And I've been in some good football camps. Plus, a, a high mixture of military uh, skills, uh, skill sets. Uh, firing weapons, uh, learning how to use weapons. Strategy? Strong, definitely strategy. We call uh, uh, platoon leader corp uh, type uh, strategies from learning how to become a, a, a lieutenant, running a squad to a platoon to a company. All right? And you had squad tactics, platoon tactics, company tactics. And all based on uh, uh, some form of combat uh, situations. Was this amazing at the time for you? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, did you feel like you found something you really loved? Well, I, I didn't mind the, the physicality of it all. In fact, it was after I got into it, 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 and it took me a while to get into the physicality because it was it was a different physicality versus playing football. Mm-hmm. Your body had to be in, 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 in fine-tuned condition. You, you, had to, uh, you had to be sharp with your body. Would they have taught you how to survive torture and stuff like that? And you, eventually, when you, when you went to a, uh, well, as time went on, uh, during my, my tours of duty, uh, we had a, um, you had a class in Vietnamization, and also part of that class was, was what would happen if you were captured, how yeah. to handle yourself. Yeah. Uh, things of that nature, but that that was further down the line. The OCS program was was. By the way, after OCS, you then went into basic school, another six months of training. So you became a lieutenant. So how many how many years in total? Like two or three to get to the point. No, actually, uh, after the basic school, you you moved quite frankly in, into uh, duty stations, uh, rolling. Re- Excuse me, role and responsibilities that you would have in your your function as an officer, and then from that point on, you just kept training, preparing yourself for for any eventuality that might come along. And then an eventuality came along. Well, yeah, I did a tour in Vietnam. <laughs> How much do you want to talk about that? You don't have to if you don't want to. Well, it's it. it, it you know, you, you, there's people who listen to this podcast who don't even know what Vietnam was. Um, well, I, I don't know if you want me to give them a history lesson. Yeah, well, I, I, I would mind Vietnam a quick... Was, a, Vietnam was... A, uh, what I'd love to know is is we're, we're, we're in a, a state of chassis in the world today. I certainly don't know how it... You know, I've, I've lived through the Gulf Wars 1 and 2, but I, how did it 
you're in the Marine. You're in the Marines. You are frontline defense of America, the world. How did it actually happen? And where, what was it like being in a military position while that was happening? Well, there's, there's two questions into that, that request. The first one, one of the questions is a political question, which is okay because it's, it's now 45, 50 years later. And the second aspect of it, A, being a political question, it then turned into a military issue. The political question centers around part of the Cold War issues. Mm. America's fighting communism. Communism is evil. Communism is creeping into other countries. Vietnam was one of those issues, uh, yeah. political issues. But so before people, you go to the second issue, I mean, McNamara... I to the second no, issue. No, but I said before you go there, McNamara's yeah. movie... Robert McNamara, who yes. would have been one of your he was the director of the he was the, he was the you know he was the, uh, the defense secretary for the United States at the time at the time and he has this movie we, we, we called the Fog of War where he kind of almost um, it's almost he, he he almost apologizes on um, in a weird way but but McNamara said said you're exactly right that America was worried that Vietnamese was going to turn communist through China. And he met the um, his counterpart many years later, who said at a dinner, you know, many years after the war was finished, who said, "What were you guys thinking? We we've been fighting the Chinese all our lives, and we were never going to let them in." Which is very true, but you see, the American involvement in Vietnam was an offshoot of World War Two. And people have to understand that Vietnam at one time was what they called French Indochina. After World War II, communists, group of communists, began a fight against the French, who still controlled Indochina. And their fight was for independence. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily the primary role of becoming communistic. Mm -hmm. It was for independence. We're talking late 50s, early 60s. Well, late yeah. 40s, into the 50s. Into the 50s, sorry. America. Nothing to do with that. Well, we did because we were supplying the French. Right, <laughs> okay. All right, we were. Yeah. We were supplying the French. We were helping them to, quote, go back to becoming French Indochina. But in reality, the Vietnamese were saying, hey, or a group of Vietnamese were saying, look, we want our independence. Mm-hmm. It just so happened they were communists. But there was another group there that wanted independence too, but they weren't communists. They were the, quote, people that said, well, we want a democracy in, in their yeah. minds. They wanted a democracy. That, that's a long story. It took years. Yeah, we to don't go. need to do that on this podcast. You know, I understood I, it. Let's go back to the personal thing. You said two things happened. So let's forget the political thing because you're right. We, there's no, there's yeah. no, we're not going to fix right. that. What was it like for you? Second point. The second point I asked was, what was it like for you when suddenly, okay, now action is about to happen and you're on a plane over to Vietnam? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, a lot of unknowns, uncertainties. Mm-hmm. I had had, by then, by the way, you have to understand it. I had had friends at some of my bases that I had been that, that had already been there on a, their first tour, so obviously we would debrief and talk about it, etc. Mm-hmm. 
And I had some, not an inkling, I had a pretty good idea of what we were dealing with. I was going in with my own unit, too, by the way. So you were in control of the unit at this stage? There was going in. Yeah. Right. We were going in as a... a, a, How many people in the unit? Well, this was a whole... uh, It was part of the uh, 9th Marine Amphibious Brigade. It was a whole brigade going in. Is that 100 people or 200? Oh, no. no. You're dealing with... uh, not only the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, but you're also doing a lot of elements within that brigade. Yeah. You had wing, uh, you had air support, you had uh, both fixed wing rotary support, you had motor transport, you, you had supply, you had infantry. <laughs> it was, and you were in charge of this? No, 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 no. I was no. one officer. There was, okay. We, okay. we had a, a, a but are we talking like a couple of thousand people? Oh, easily. Right. In fact, okay. we took over a base, right. a portion of a base when we went in. What, was your, what was your head and heart saying when you landed first in Vietnam to yourself? Stay alive. Really? That's well, you, you, everyone's going to, you know, you, you have to have that emotion inside of you. There, there are so many roles that, that, that Marines played in uh, Vietnam, as, as even the soldiers in the Army played, etc. Mm-hmm. I was at a base in what they call I-Corps. It's the northernmost province of uh, Vietnam. I was at a base called Chu Lai. It's on the uh, China Sea, which is uh, about... Uh, China Beach, around there. Yeah, it actually, China Beach is, is is the it's China Beach runs all the way from yeah, Chulai up yeah, to Danang, Hoi An places like that. Well, that's further north, I think. Hoi right. An was, but it was pretty steady. I'd go back and I'd be up at Danang sometimes. Most of the time, I was at, at Chulai, a big base. Mm-hmm. The Americans had come in there in '66, uh, I believe it was. First Marines mm. uh, came in, and, and it is the First Marines, it was called. Uh, that's the group, First yes. Marine Division. All right. And they they came in, they came into Danang, they came into Chu Lai, and they had other uh, bases around the North, uh, I Corps, as we called it. By the time I got there, it was 67. The base was even larger than it was when they first went in. We had a 10,000 foot wow. airstrip built. And I mean, I'm sure it's probably still there for all I know. Uh, but they had massive uh, troop deployments coming in through July. A lot of air, air support coming out of July. You know, guys, the base itself, squadrons of Marines, uh, fighter units, uh, helicopter, uh, you name it. Part of my responsibility was defense protection. By the way, we also had South Koreans there, Australians. In many cases, we intermeshed our, our security lines with uh, other groups, uh, South Koreans particularly, South Korean Marines, to be honest, quite frankly. Right. It, 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 it settled into a, a, a day of, you know, the day and night, rocket attacks, mortars, etc. It's a lot of probing by the enemy. Uh, to a certain degree, it was everyday living, you had some issues, meaning some guys were getting killed on the line. Some of the attacks killed others. Mortar attacks uh, killed some. But it, it also was a day-to-day boredom. Yeah. Waiting. Or, in some cases, you, you do sweeps. 
through the villages, uh, because a lot of the people that were coming out of the base was what we called indigenous personnel. Indigenous meaning, well, they're, they're part of the community, but they're not Ameri- they're not soldiers, troopers, Marines. They're coming out of the base. Then in, uh, towards uh, the end of my tour almost, not quite the end of my tour, but uh, 1968, the Tet Offensive hit. And obviously, if you follow history, the Vietnamese, and the North Vietnamese felt this was going to topple the whole government. And it was, it was a little hot. Mm. But I'll say it to you in a nice way. We kicked the living daylights out of them. Mm-hmm. That was a turning point politically in America, because immediately the, uh, the what came back was, oh my God, we were supposed to be safe and it was, thing was being stabilized, but that's not <coughs> the way it was presented when it came back to the United States. That's the that's where the politics and the military didn't I mean, mesh. One one thing I'll say to you, Sean, I've put that behind me. Yes, I know. Right. And I, I did say as much as you want to talk about it, you don't. No, no, I mean, I've put it behind me, uh, even though I had some friends, good friends, I think I want to call them, who didn't make it home. Mm-hmm. All right. it, it took me a while to, to adjust to that process of why, what happened, why did it happen. But it's past me now. It's still know? a bit unclear. You, I mean... You study history, you're a big studier of history. History will probably say that America lost that war, although they came out of it probably claiming they won or didn't lose it. But you had Nixon as your president when it was finishing, correct? Correct. Let's just move on because, well, we're again, we're not going to, we, we don't need to go into it in huge no, detail. But you come home. Tell me what it was like coming home. Well, first of all... <laughs> It was a nice experience to leave. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you know, uh, coming back. But unfortunately, <laughs> I came back to the United States in uh, April of uh, 1968. And uh, we had some phenomenal events happen in that particular month. In fact, uh, I, I touched down at... at uh, a base out in the California called El Toro. It was a Marine Courier station. Actually, I went into LAX on a commercial flight from Donne. They had a couple of contracts with some major carriers that would fly into Donne, take out the troops, fly them into Okinawa, and then LA. get another commercial flight directly into LAX. Did you know you were done then? No, you didn't. Well, I was done with my tour in Vietnam. You knew you were done with your tour, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. 12, you know, you were supposed to spend 12, 12 months, 25 days, you know, mm. come home. And they, they were right out of money at that point. Mm. thing was, it was kind of strange when I came home. I remember came, coming into LAX. It was 4 in the morning. I think it was April 1. Yeah. Could have been the second. I just don't remember exactly because it was the morning across the international yeah, yeah. line and all that good stuff. But the fact of the matter was, what stuck in my head was, Jesus, we're coming into LAX, but the plane is way, way out on the tarmac, not the main terminal. And buses were coming out to the tarmac. Hmm. 
to load the troops into the buses and take them out the back door. Because yeah. there was protesters. Well, you know, it, it, by the way, I had been over, overseas for over a year. So my the, the, the only thing I saw were the Stars and Stripes newspaper. You know. Which would be a bit one-sided. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get, you know, the only good thing about it is I get the baseball scores in there. Well, indeed. But they were two days old. <laughs> yeah. No internet, no mobile phones. No, 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 no. It was a different world. But Do you think the, technology would have helped you? In the like the, the technology we have today where everything's, yeah, in that world. People knowing what's going on, people being able to video what's going on. You, you, you have to deal with the now and then. And then the, the issue, Vietnam was, well, I'm not speechless on the subject, trust me. It, it, was, it was something that, that maybe shouldn't have happened. It did happen. You know, and if it was going to happen, which it did do, we should have either stay with the commitment and you really follow it carefully. It was the Congress mm. that pulled the, the plug out on the South Vietnamese. One thing I should add to that, I trained with the South Vietnamese in my OCS program. They were sending their, their, they were sending their officers, South Vietnamese Marine officers, to Quantico for training. Some of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. Mm. South Vietnamese Marines, right? And I, I don't even want to think what took place and what happened to those individuals. Right. Yeah. But it's it's many years past. So you're home. I'm home. I come back and I said, well, where am I going to live? Where am I going to live? Obviously, I got to go back to Rochester to say hello to my family. Of course. Uh, but I, I mustered out of the Marines. I said, they, they wanted me to stay in. And mm -hmm. I said, no, my tour is up and my commitment is fulfilled. And believe me, they wanted me to stay. They were throwing an awful lot of incentives out uh, to stay in the Marine Corps. Uh, new duty stations, uh, maybe even embassy duty. And I said, no, no, no. I said, yeah. that's not for me. Right. I, I want to see what the rest of the world looks like. I know what I'm leaving, and I'm not quite sure where I'm going, but I know the direction I'm going. And I came home. Uh, my family wanted me to move back uh, to Rochester. I mm. said, nah, I need some lights. Meaning what? Well, I just spent a year overseas. It was quite <laughs> dark. Yeah, well, yeah. It was dark at night, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah brilliant. <laughs> I, I need some lights. I want to see lights 24 hours a day. Was this Manhattan? That's Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's, it's going to be Manhattan. Brilliant. And I did. I moved into the uh, West Village. There I was, probably the only Marine in the West Village at the time. <laughs> Maybe there were some more, but yeah. I was the only one with a USMC shirt that would run around the village in my combat boots. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> what? what year are we now? 1968. By the way. What was the West Village like in 1968? Oh, I had a, uh, a railroad flat on Spring and, uh, Spring and Thompson. Uh, it was a three-story walk, uh, th three-floor walk-up, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, great little railroad flats. One hundred and seventy-five dollars a month. Wow. Rent. Wow. Hey, you you couldn't t touch that with four figures right now, probably. Right. Absolutely right. <laughs> it's probably it's probably the it same. Was, by the way, it's it. now called Soho, right? Back then, it was 
Yeah, it's the West Village. There's nothing down there. Yeah. I mean, there was. Uh, Were you starting from scratch? Well, I had some. You know, I had, I had some money. Good, from, I, yeah. Well, yeah, I did. I had a nice. Well, remember, I was in Vietnam for yeah. you know twelve months, whatever it was, and uh, all my pay was just being banked. Yeah. Combat pay, which was seventy five dollars a month. <laughs> no, that's putting 175 a month in perspective, isn't it? If you think about I don't it. even know what it is now. My, my, no, no, I'm just saying if you're, you come back, oh, that, you're oh, getting yeah, paid yeah, 75 yeah. a month to put your life on the line, you come back and you have to pay 175 to get a shitty flat in the West Village. <laughs> what, what, what are you shitty? Well, that's a good. <laughs> so, what did you decide to do then? What was your head? Where was well, your head? For the first couple of months, I said, I'm on R&R. I was just going to enjoy New York. Yeah, but a lot of people came back. We know with, with with which wasn't even a thing then, but with post traumatic stress. And did you have any of those things happen to you? Well, I had, uh, you know, my sleeping wasn't so hot. Mm. Uh, I remember visiting my mother's sister who was living on Long Island at the time. She says uh, about three or four days after I'd been there, I was sleeping on a couch. She says, "Anthony, you're a wreck." I says, "What do you mean?" She says, you jump almost every every minute. Mm. I says, Barb, and her name is Barbara. I says, Barbara, you know what? I probably am a wreck. Mm. If you'd been to Vietnam and, and you know, you, you keep one eye open almost all the time and you worry about the troops, you, you see things that you, you, you just kind of push out of your mind and move into the next minute, let that last minute go away. Yes, I am a wreck. How did you... Put your life back on a keel then. Well, I, like I said, I, I threw myself, came into New York, got myself an apartment. Two or three weeks later, I said, well, let me let me go test the market for jobs, right. see what's going on. And I found a, an organization called Lenman Associates. I even remember the name. It was on 42nd Street and uh, 5th Avenue. And I, I set up an appointment with a, uh, with, as you know, the term headhunter. I uh, set up an appointment. It was going to be a 10 a.m. morning appointment. And New York is, is alive and well. Yeah. It's a wonderful place. Happy days. It's it's early June, 1968. Yeah, yeah the news is, is blaring out. You know, Vietnam is still hot. Yeah, people are still coining it, as they always do there. Martin Luther King was killed in April. Bobby Kennedy was killed in June. Politics was crazy. Yeah. That seems like we're reliving that. We are a bit. Yeah. We're not talking about politics. That's true. <laughs> I went up to Lemon Associates. I had a 10 a.m. appointment. I was out in the, in the um, lobby of the building, waiting there for the elevator to come to me. I get Someone taps me on my shoulder. I turn around. It was an old fraternity brother of mine that I hadn't seen in four years. Okay. Yeah. And I said to him, and he had a nickname, Feathers. And I said, Feathers, what are you doing here? He said, I got an appointment upstairs. I said, who do you want to see? Lemon Associates. I said, for what? He said, I need a job. Where have you been? I said, I was in the Navy. Oh, my God. He was a SEAL. He had just Did they hire both of you? He was in Vietnam. Did they hire both of you? Well, we, well, Lenman got us jobs. Both of us got right. jobs through yeah. eventually. Right. I mean, oh, they were the headhunters. That's right. Yeah. They were headhunters. We didn't work for them. Right. But uh, the, the fact of the matter is we never made that appointment that morning. Oh, you just had to catch up. 
Yeah, we, like I said, everything's alive, no matter what. You know there's saloons alive at 10 o'clock in the morning. Of Mostly course. Irish saloons. Of course. Thank so you. Guess At least what we, we did, did something for society. We, we didn't make that appointment that morning. Great. We headed out. We caught up. Well, right. the next couple of weeks, that's all we did was head out. <laughs> you became a businessman, though. Tell well, me how quickly got, you became a businessman. Well, I got a job through Lemon Associates. I went to work for American Express. I'm going to be relatively quick about the American Express experience. But it was my first job yeah. in the business world. Mm-hmm. And we were the first class in the credit card division management program. There were 18 of us. The reason being probably because credit cards were just being invented. Exactly. Yeah. You're right. Everything, by the way, everything was manual. The paper on files. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. was crazy. The good thing about that job is I ended up working in in the sales group. American Express was trying to expand their retail business. And I ended up with a, a, a territory in Long Island. I handled all of Long Island. Restaurants, airlines. Shops. Shops, yeah, yeah. You know, et cetera. I had to sign them up. That's a cool job. Yeah, but, but because it was all new. Yeah. I mean, in, in, in the retail shops. So you had to bring the machinery in and get them to guard the Well, no, no, no. no. I, I would have, I would have customer reps do all that stuff. Okay. But, but I, what, I, my job was to get with the owners, mm-hmm. or in some cases, uh, Doubleday was one of my accounts. I don't know if you're familiar with Doubleday. Uh, they were major, uh, like a Barnes & Noble back then. Right. But I had a lot of major restaurants. I had all the restaurants. I had... The, the, the company had given me an awful lot of power. I could lend money to the restaurants based on their future receivables. Yes. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was a good experience to, to learn. But how, did you feel, how did you feel doing that? Because you, you had a pretty senior position if you were able to do that. How, how did you feel uh, in your own head? Can you remember when you cross-pollinate that with the previous... Well, the Marine Corps gave me the structure right. to, to work in, a, in an environment and develop a structure within the environment. Mm. The, the only problem with the American Express is they were so new at the training aspect, three-quarters of the candidates that came to them in that first class left within 60 days. It was, it was just a mess. There was no direction. It's so alien to them or something. American but, Express, no. American Express blew it. And I happen to become friends, though, with the uh, one of the top personnel people there, who, who this was not her program, but mm-hmm. she was corporate personnel. I had become friends with her, and, and she said to me, she had asked me one day for an interview. She said, I want to interview you, find out what's going on in the uh, credit card division, mm-hmm. why the program is failing. Mm-hmm. She said, it's simple. There's no direction. So what you, you did, what you were able to bring to these jobs was just this kind of ability to manage and organize Well, things. but bear with me. I, I wasn't in that, that particular job at that yeah. point. I was in the training program. Okay. okay. This, she says, you're down to like two people. You're one of them. Why are you staying? So I'm not going to be here long. She says, you're going to leave? I said, well, what am I going to do? I'm not learning anything over there. Yeah. Number one. And number two, they don't know what they're doing. She says, well, what do you want to do? Oh, hey, heck, I can, I can do anything. But I got to have, I got to put myself in the teeth to something that makes sense. Mm. Right now, nothing makes sense over there. Mm. She says, how about sales? I says, I'll try it, but not with that group. 
She moved me. She got me moved out of that. I was corporate. She was a corporate uh, director of personnel. She was a good person to get to know. And she got me an interview with the vice president of sales. He immediately hired me. Gave me a territory immediately. He says, you develop your structure. I trust you to develop your own structure. I said, that's simple. I had a good secretary, which I'll, I'll always say. I had a very good secretary. and She understood, A, good structure. Yeah. B, she understood problems and problem solving. And she understood she probably, you. Well, she understood me, but she understood the clients also, which was good. So she gave me a little bit of education on the clients. The structure we set up together was very successful doing it. And that's how I had the responsibility of, of, of literally lending out hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. on my call. How many years did you spend with American Express? Two years. And then were you bitten by the sales? Well, I, sales. I had long. I had long. I said I had a good relationship with the corporate director, of personnel, and we were having dinner one night, and, and she says, how, "How are you doing?" I said, "That's okay." She said, "Then I don't have training." I says, uh, "I says uh, they, they 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 really should kind of get." Some kind of a training package for the salespeople in the division. He says, you're not going to see that here right now. He says, I'll tell you the corporations you'll find it at. And that's how I ended up at Xerox. <coughs> so Xerox Tony, had a, a very thorough training program. So Tony moved then to Xerox and then became a agent. Is that right? You, you, no, had, your, no, you had your no, own no, business, basically. You know, no. Well, at Xerox, you, you were selling directly for Xerox. I spent seven yeah. years at Xerox. I worked up through both the, the uh, sales division group mm. into management mm. and eventually became a trainer also. And from that point on, I, I made a decision that there, there are maybe greener pastures on the other side of the fence. I went to a competitor, became a national manager, uh, worked three years as a national manager at this competitor, grew their business from zero to 50 million, decided, hey, if I can do that, you can I can run my own thing. business. And eventually I hooked up with uh, two other gentlemen, and we went into business in the early 80s in the New York market, selling office products directly to end users, end users being the retail accounts, state, yeah. government, local uh, hospitals, etc. We'd buy from the manufacturers, and by that time, the, the major manufacturers other than Xerox or an IBM were Japanese. So I became a buyer of product from the Japanese manufacturers and then sold it into the marketplace. And that business lasted for? Well, I sold it, actually. Um, uh, we started in 1981 and bought out my partners in the late 80s, early 90s. late 80s, I bought out my partners and uh, made a couple of acquisitions in the 90s. Uh, but it was, your, help, it was a thing. It, well, it was good. It was good. We, we, we got our sales up to $35 million, mostly in the New York marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, but 1996, I had a heart attack at the age of 54. Why? <laughs> Why? Shawnee, that's a great question. You know what I did, though? That night of my heart attack, as I was laying in that hospital, and it was dark in the hospital because yeah. it was d January, it was a cold January day in, in uh, New York City area. And I was in that hospital, and those lights are flashing all mm -hmm. over the place because I'm wired up. I said the same thing. How did I get here? How did I get here? And I said to myself, guess what? It's time to move on to something else in life because life is too precious. 
to waste my time selling copiers. And I made a decision that at that point, I will sell the company as quick or as possible, as fast as I could. Took me a while. You were married at this stage with oh, two children. Oh, I was children. married. I had two children. Actually, both of them were in college at the time. Yeah. Both daughters were in college. You're living in New Jersey? No, we were living in uh, what they call Rockland County, a little town called uh, Montebello, close to the Harriman State Park, if you're familiar with the New York area. It's, it's a beautiful area. It's in the Hudson Valley. Nice home. Liked it. However, part of the reason for the heart attack was I was shoveling snow at the time. Right, you tell me this. Oh, yeah. And by the way, I was shoveling snow for my little dog who couldn't get out because there was too much snow. That's very cute. <laughs> How quickly did you sell the company then? Well, I, I, my buyer actually was my... I had a, a young executive in the company who worked with me. He was also a neighbor of mine. And uh, I, I coached him on the business. It was a great kid. A kid. He was a great guy. And uh, he pulled together some investors over time and was able to, to pull off the purchase. Uh, he bought it in 2001. I kept a piece of the company, which was down here in Charleston. But then again, I sold that by 2003 when I finally got down here. So uh, Tony's no Arnold Palmer, but uh, he uh, he's in his 70s and he uh, whipped my ass today at golf. And now you're living in this lovely uh, house, home that I'm, I'm, I'm interviewing you in. When you look back on this very interesting career in a sense that there was so little, not planning, but that it brought you into all these places and you eventually, what, what do you say to the, A, the young Tony Pavoni and B, anyone who might be a young Tony Pavoni out there today? Are you proud of what you did? I'm very proud. Yeah, you know, Sean, I'm looking at a photo. Uh, it's it's a, uh, a photograph of my father's picture on the wall over here. He was uh, he was probably around 19 or 20 at the time. And when I was growing up, you know, that small town, I would always look and say, "Geez, Dad, you're talking Italian with your mother all the time." But you can speak English very well. And by the way, he had become a I remember he was a road worker, but he always had a focus on doing something more than just being a road worker. He became a manager, and when I say a manager, he was actually called the boss of a, a uh, shipping gang in a panel factory, which was one of the largest panel factories in the country back in the 50s. They used to ship 2,000 pianos a month, putting them on trucks, trains, etc., and shipping them throughout the United States. He didn't have a computer then, but he had a big log book. He'd bring it home with him. And in his handwriting, you could see what he was shipping and where he was shipping it. It was all numbers, etc. Remember, this is a guy that only got through fourth grade. If I could say anything to the young kids today, you probably can get a lesson from a person like him who said, look, I'm going to have a focus, but it's going to be in front of me, and I'm going to drive to it. That focus has always been there for that man, and quite honestly, the focus has always been there for me. Mm -hmm. Drive towards it. Have I made mistakes? Heck yeah. I've learned from them, and I try not to make them again, or the same ones again. Drive towards your 
your focus or better than that is don't 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 run away from something run towards something that's a great way to end the podcast that was a great journey you brought me on tony pavoni thank you or anthony pavoni thank you very much for you're welcome sure. for uh, allowing me into your house being a great he, uh, tony is one of the greatest uh not only raconteurs as you heard, but he's a very generous guy, and he's a guy who uh, he's one of the greatest guys to go on a pint with. So if you're ever in Charleston, you know who to look up. Tony, look after yourself, and thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Tony. <laughs>